Please turn with me in your Bibles to what is called the first letter of John, or first John, or if you prefer, for those of you that are friends in the UK or Australia, one John. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, you can find this on page 959. This is a five-chapter book-slash-letter, and as we work through it starting today for the next few months, I'd like to begin by setting a little bit of the context and then also the relevance of this for each one of you. Context-slash-relevance. I want you to imagine first you're me, Etienne, an elder, a pastor of a church. That's who John is writing this. Presumably an older man, guesses are anywhere between 70, 80, 90 years old. Anywhere from 60, 70, 80 at the earliest to 80, 90 AD in terms of time period. But an old man that's personally eyewitnessed Jesus Christ, been commissioned by him, an apostle with a capital A. An author of scripture. A man who helped lead and guide churches. Many people think he was in Ephesus during the time of this writing. Now, I want you to imagine that you are about to address house churches, the ones that we've heard about in the last two Sundays, for those of you that were able to be here. House churches or church leaders, and these people that you're about to address, they're dealing with crisis, division, threats, dangers, conflicts. This is what we find all throughout 1 John and what we've already heard the last two Sundays in this study of the letters of John. So here's what I mean by relevance. The vast majority of you are not pastors, apostles, elders. I'm aware of that. But you, as an individual, need to be responsible for yourself, first and foremost. Several of you might be husbands and head of a home. Others of you might have children and you have the responsibility of caring for them obligations in your work. So I'd like to universalize the problems. The specific narrow bullseye of the problem, if we were to put it that way, is that John is writing to a community of people that are in crisis. So put yourself in those shoes. Your parent and your child is walking in darkness. That's chapter 2, 10, and 11. You're a pastor, an elder, And you have people who have left your church. That's chapter 2, verse 19. You're a husband, a, a wife, and your spouse has turned away from the truth to the devil. This is chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Whatever the context is, I want you to just think, what would you do if false prophets came in and started misleading your daughter, your friend, your family member? A Jehovah's Witness knocked on the door and led your mom toward a different way of thinking about Jesus Christ. And you show up on Christmas. And it's the Christmas gathering around the table. And she says, I've got news to share. I'm now a Jehovah's Witness. This is what I'm trying to help you see in terms of relevance in your own individual applications. But 
The main relevance here is John, as a leader of the church, is writing to a church in crisis. And I would like all of us to learn from him these next four Sundays. How? How does John immediately address the issue, and then how does that set the agenda for everything he's going to say for people who are walking in the darkness and not the light? For helping encourage a church that's struggling with church members who have left. For those who have turned away from the truth of the one true God and been deceived by the ultimate deceiver, the devil. Or to put it as the very end of the letter, if you want to just turn real quickly. This is, many people think, the purpose statement of 1 John. I think there's various purpose, but chapter 5, verse 13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have eternal life and confidence, as he goes on to say. Have you ever had to tell yourself something about the gospel to reinforce, like, why am I a Christian? Assurance of salvation. Ever struggle with that individually? This is what I mean by I think that 1 John addresses a variety of issues of division, conflict, threats, false teaching. So how does he do it? What's the first thing you're going to say? What's the main topic that you're going to center on and come back to again and again? Brothers and sisters, the answer should be obvious. It's Jesus. It's Christ. How does John deal with these issues. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 5 of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that'll end our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. My prayer for us is that we will receive Christ this week, next week, two weeks, the next three weeks, maybe until he returns. Amen? I'd like to propose a big idea that I will unpack for four straight weeks as we look at these first four to five verses. I have worked to provide for you a single sentence that I believe is so dense and so compact and so Christ-centered and so fitting for Advent that it will take us today and the next three ensuing Sundays to understand and apply this one sentence. And I'm basing it off of my attempt to summarize what is 
arguably one of the more complicated passages in terms of its grammar, both in the original and in the English, as we'll find out in just a moment. But here's your sentence. Considering the context that I just laid out, in, in the face of a crisis in the church community, John and the apostles in the we, what do they do? They proclaim the word of life for the purpose of joy-filled participation in the age to come. That's my, my best attempt to just boil it down for you. They proclaim. The main verb here that's repeated three times is, I believe, proclaim. In the face of the crisis, what's John thinking? I'm going to proclaim Christ. I'm going to proclaim, more specifically, he describes the word of life. And then we're told the purpose for this. For the purpose of joy-filled, that's verse 4, so that your joy would be complete. In the participation that's with one another in the church, that's with the Father and Son in heaven, in light of the age to come, participation in the age to come. There's several phrases in there that you might be familiar with and some of them that you'll be unfamiliar with. Guess what? Good news. If you come back for the next three weeks, you have four weeks to kind of chew on this. I think these truths in these four verses and dipping a little into verse five, they're fantastic. They're what it means to be a Christian. They could change your life forever. They could help reshape your faith for those of you that are struggling with assurance. They certainly help us at Embassy Church in whatever issues that we might be facing in the present day to center our eyes, our hearts, our ears on Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do today as an introduction to these four weeks. I'd like to just briefly explain why I chose this sentence. And then I'd like to unpack verse 1 for you in terms of how it contributes to making sense of proclaiming the word of life. What's the word of life? So first, I want to unpack for you why I chose this sentence to kind of get the ball rolling for this paragraph. I believe that the direct object, the subject matter, grammatically speaking, is the phrase concerning the word of life. Do you see that all in verse 1? Concerning the word of life. That's the main subject of what is a very long first sentence that concludes all the way through verse 3. Verses 1 through 3 is one long Greek sentence. And in English, they maintain that. That's the main subject, concerning the word of life. The main verb that is repeated, but that is attached to this word of life, is the verb proclaim. So this is where my sentence says, all right, in the face of crisis, divisions, threats, false teaching, John says, I seek in the present active tense to proclaim through this writing and through my ministry to you, the word of life. And then he tells us his purpose. Most of this paragraph is explaining the description of the word of life, which will be a lot of our sermon for today. But the rest explains the purpose, and this is what we see in verse 3 and 4. Look right in the middle of verse 3. That which we've seen and we've heard and we proclaim also to you. And here's that 
purpose clause, the because, the so that. And so that's why I've summarized it as John proclaims the word of life for this purpose. Joy-filled fellowship or participation in the age to come. And that's basically my way of helping you understand the phrase eternal life, which we're going to focus a lot on next Sunday. The age to come is the phrase here in English, eternal life. So there you go. That's my rationale. John, in the face of church crisis, proclaims Christ, and he calls him the word of life, for the purpose of joy-filled participation in the age to come. I hope that before we unpack some of its meaning and significance for your day-to-day life, that you see that embedded in this one sentence, plenty of applications that we will hopefully tease out for the next few weeks. The ministry of proclamation, the importance of teaching, the centrality of a church around God's word, someone struggling with the faith. If you want to love them, you might want to sit them down and talk to them about Christ lovingly for the sake of their joy. That does not need to seem like you are high and mighty. It does not need to seem like you're better than someone, that you're giving them a lecture. I'm going to lecture you. If it's a Christ-filled lecture, that's fantastic. Do it, church. It's what I'm doing right now, not a lecture. I'm preaching, proclaiming to you so that you can have life because I believe, just like John does, that through the preaching of Christ, your joy will be at its fullest as we participate and fellowship in the Father, the Son, and one another. And that this starts to bring about the reality of eternal life now, not just in the future. These these are the things that I think are just so electric and loaded and will take more than just a 30-40 minute sermon on a single Sunday. Plus, We find ourselves on the first Sunday of Advent. So since Advent is about hope and peace and joy and love, well, there's no explicit mention of peace, but the hope of resurrected life, the joy that comes through participation in the local church and the love of this koinonia fellowship. I mean, this is all Advent written all over it. So I hope that is a good enough reason and justification for you not only to be interested, but for you to start already applying and thinking about the importance of our ministry, why you're here today. We proclaim and we participate. Or to put it another way, we are a ministry of the word, which is why I'm preaching to you now, and we are a ministry of the bread and the cup and baptism. A true church, in its simplest of definitions, is a church that proclaims Christ, the true gospel, and is a church that participates in that fellowship which is defined by baptism and the bread and the cup, the Lord's Supper. So, a healthy church, a true church, the place on earth where the fullness of joy can be experienced and known and tasted and seen and where hope for not just now but forever and eternity is found, where those two mighty things are happening, preaching, claiming and participating in the fellowship of Christian community. So let's dive into week one, verse one. Let me read it to you again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I mentioned that this is a very confusing passage. It's grammatically all over the place. Here's part of what I mean by that. Start reading the first phrase, that which was from the beginning. In normal grammar, whether you're talking about English or Greek, you're going to be wondering, what? That what? Like, what are we talking about? He doesn't tell you. He says, that which was from the beginning. Okay. Something that we've heard. Okay. What is it? That which we've seen. Still don't know what you're talking about. That which we've beheld or looked upon. It's the verb for examining closely. Still don't know what you're talking about. That which we've touched. Still don't know what you're talking about. Concerning the word of life. John, I think deliberately, is writing in such a way that you have to read and reread verses 1 and 2. In other words, the only way to make sense of sentence 1 is by realizing that the main verb that's driving all of it, which is why if you wanted to, the New Living Translation actually does this. So if any of you have a different translation option, you'll see that they actually add the word we proclaim to the very beginning of the sentence because that just reads naturally. It's an accurate translation of the text. But I don't think that's the right way to approach the text. I think you should approach it as John wrote it, which is read it and then reread it. Read it and then realize that which was from the beginning. Okay, that's the word of life, which we've heard, which is the word of life, which we've seen, that's the word of life, which we've looked upon, word of life, touched, word of life. And what are we talking about again, John? We're talking about proclaiming the word of life. And you don't even get that until you get to verse 2. Notice he then elaborates on the life. So concerning the word of life, and then let me tell you a little bit more about the life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it. And now we finally get something describing what he's talking about, testifying and proclaiming the eternal life. So only by reading... And rereading, do you make sense of verse 1, verse 2, and the following sentences? In the light of that, I would suggest to you that we should pause, slow down, not be in a hurry, and make sure we understand both as a believing, committed, covenant membership community, what's the word of life? What is that? Why does he intentionally want us to go back and attach word of life to that which was from the beginning? what we've seen, what we've observed, what we've touched. Let's do it. First, word. It's a word. I'm proclaiming to you a word. Like literally right now, Phil Howell, I'm preaching. I'm proclaiming a word, words coming out of my mouth. That's common sense enough. John's not saying that. Because if you go back and attach word of life, you notice that he's saying, we've touched it. You guys want to touch my words? Phil Howell is preaching words. Can you touch them? Can you even see them? Like, are they actually audibly and visibly coming out of my mouth? No, you're hearing them. What is he talking about? How, how can you touch, see words? Is he saying that he's, 
you see words on a page? No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. Because it's not about touching it. Plus, now we have to account for this very first phrase. It was from the beginning. So his message could be summarized in a word, literally, the word word. He's proclaiming a word. Lagos. Is he talking about Greek philosophy? Perhaps, but probably not. He's a Jewish man. He's been rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. So, the first sense to make sense of the word, the word word, is what was read for us by Joe. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the, the word. And the parallels between John 1 and 1 John 1 are all over the place. Jesus is called the word. Jesus is described as having life. The contrast between light and darkness, as Kyler came up and read for us the creation account. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And we're talking about the very beginning of creation when light overcame the darkness. So we know from John 1, and we know from Genesis 1, in the beginning, it's talking about the word from the very beginning, pre-existent before any material created thing, the eternal divine son of God, the one who has fellowship with the father before anything ever existed. That's what's discussed in this paragraph. This is actually a great place, by the way, for you to bolster your faith that Jesus is not just a man, but he is the God-man. You get that Jehovah's Witness knocking on the door? Whoever, I don't want to just pick on them, but a false teacher starts telling you, the Bible doesn't say anything in the New Testament about Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man. Friends, right here, the word of life, which he makes explicit in verse 3, is the Son, Jesus Christ, the one who has fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's the fellowship that we can have in him. And we're talking about something that was from before the beginning. Also, as another cross-text reference, you should study and meditate deeply on Proverbs chapter 8. The idea of lady wisdom being with God in the beginning of creation. Lady wisdom being a person, a person character in that chapter of the Bible that is with the creator God, but not God. Interestingly enough, by reading your Old Testament carefully, as a Jewish man like John, you can prove and strengthen the case for the divine essence of Jesus Christ as the one true God, fully God and fully man, by reading your Old Testament. This is not a New Testament doctrine. This is an idea that New Testament Christians got from reading their Old Testament. That which was from the beginning, the pre-existent nature of the Son of God, the eternal person, second person of the triune God. We've heard him, we have seen him with our eyes, we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands this word. 
a word of life. I believe the best way for us to make sense of this phrase concerning the word of life is to have, check this guys, ready? No takers, John chapter one, Proverbs chapter eight, Genesis chapter one, and I believe you need, and this will be the surprise, John chapter 20. Why John chapter 20? Because he is talking not just about the beginning of John and the incarnation. He's talking about the life of the resurrected son of God who died on a cross for sinners and rose again from the dead. That's the word of life. And the reason I say that is because of our sermon title today, Touching the Word of Life. Touching. John 20 the end of John's gospel, not only provides a beautiful bookend by making all of these Genesis references at the end of John's gospel. So we know John's gospel in chapter one, in the beginning was the word. Makes you think about creation. The end of John's gospel should make you think about creation again, but in a different way. New creation, new creation that was birthed through the resurrection of Jesus. Since we're not doing a John sermon series, I can't give you all of those reasons for now, but here's the one that I think you all need to turn to. So please, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. Touched. Now, the verb touched could easily be, well, it just means that people touched Jesus. They were close to him. They gave him hugs, and they saw his face, and they were in his physical presence. But I think that the best way to read it is that this verb for touched, because it only appears four times in the entire New Testament, and the only two times that it's used in reference to Jesus is John 20, um, or Luke 24's resurrection appearance, and 1 John chapter 1, which then makes us think of this specific moment when the disciples, they, they touched him. And so... After Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to Mary, we'll pick it up in terms of the chapter right here in chapter 24. Or sorry, 2024. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in my with his in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So notice the same idea of seeing is one of the key verbs that is used both in 1 John and in John 20 and in Luke 24. They saw, they're eyewitnesses of the resurrected. So he, he became a man, incarnation, but also resurrection. The word of life is not just the incarnation. It is both the coming of the Son and the dying and rising of the Son. And seeing is not enough for Thomas. Eight days later, as the text continues, verse 26, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, as if he already heard the rumors, Thomas is doubting, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve 
but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is one of seven times in the New Testament where the Bible explicitly looks at the human Jesus and says, God, theos, the word God, and it's describing Jesus. Meaning, right now, according to Jewish custom, Thomas should be stoned to death unless he's telling the truth. Jesus is the God-man. So how does Jesus respond? He should say, like all the angels do, don't bow down to me, do not worship me, do not credit me as God. I'm only just a man, I'm just an angel. Instead, Jesus said to him, look at the last verse, chapter 20, verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He receives the worship of Thomas. Jesus is the word of life. The word of life is the one who from before the beginning, before creation existed, dwelled in perfect harmony and unity with the Father and the Spirit. And in the overflow of their joyful love, they created a good world. But that good world rebelled and rejected the word, the message of life, and chose death. Do you all remember the beautiful lines that we will sing, I believe, in this Advent season? Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. That's what humans have done. In our sin and rebellion, each and every one of us in this room, we have rejected the message, the truth, the word. We have rejected God. And it's not just a proposition, it's a person. And that is why death reigns. That's why darkness exists. That's why divisions occur in churches. That's why people walk in the darkness and not the light. Therefore, the antidote, the solution, the hope is the word of life. The God-man, the Son of God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, living a perfect life. We saw him, we touched him, and not just the one who lived and walked the earth, but the one who died and rose again. We put our fingers in his nail prints and the scars in his side, slain by death, the God of life, the song says, but no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive, because he's the God of life. I believe that if I were to expand on our one sentence, I would put it this way, in the midst of threats, false teachings, dangers, whether it be denying the incarnation or denying the power of resurrection life, John wants to proclaim Easter. Resurrection, life from the dead, proclaiming this word of life. And everything that he says in the surrounding context provides further descriptions and explanation of this word of life, this resurrected Christ. It's from the beginning. It has been heard. It has been seen with eyes. It's been held and examined closely. This is 1 John 1, by the way. So if you want, turn back and see. These are all the descriptors. So you can know and believe that he can be touched and handled. He's been made visible and manifest. He's been seen with his eyes twice, John repeats this. He is witnessed or testified to and about. 
He should be proclaimed that he is the source of life unto the age, or the phrase eternal life. This is who John wants to proclaim, the one who was with the Father, the one who returned to the Father, the one manifest, seen, heard. That's the one proclaimed. So I would love each and every one of you to just do some soul searching right this minute. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes or no? True or false? And not just yes or no, true or false. Why? The appropriate answer that should regularly be the thing that you turn to, default to. How about those moments? 1 John chapter 5 said, I'm writing these things so that you'll have confidence in your faith. Struggling with assurance? Struggling with, do I really believe this thing? I don't know, sin tastes pretty good sometimes, doesn't it? Maybe we should just go on sinning. The reason is because of an event in objective human history outside of yourself. Notice, I did not ask, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him? And then ask, now why? Well, Look at an experience in your heart. That might help. It could confirm. First and foremost, set your gaze on the reality of fact, history. These are not just abstract, philosophical, pie-in-the-sky ideas. This is as flesh and bone and as gritty and dirty as you can imagine. A human Here's another way to put it. I'm in my very first ministry position. So I'm in my early 20s. I don't really know what I'm doing if I'm to be completely honest. So I'm trying to help a bunch of high school and middle school kids know the gospel and I'm preaching the gospel. And one of these kids uh, decides to leave the faith. He rejected Christianity. It was heartbreaking. He was the pastor's son, like the senior pastor's son. And so I'm kind of in the middle of all this because I'm like his discipler. And we're having these conversations day after day, week after week. And here's one of the things I learned from that experience. And it was not because I learned it because I'm so wise and intelligent. I actually got help from a friend. And this friend, older, wiser, pastor, minister, said, is the basis for why they're walking away from the faith. Because they have rejected the historical just fact of who Jesus is. And they have like a completely different accounting of who the word of life, the God-man who came in the flesh. I said, that's a good question. So I tried to figure it out. What's really going on here? And the more I pressed, and the more I pressed, the more I pressed. Everything that was being told to me as reasons for why they couldn't believe, it became so obvious that it was not primarily because of history or fact or reason. It was because of their heart. Their heart wanted to do what they wanted to do. And thankfully, in this case, it became clear to both of us. 
because we were spending a lot of time arguing about philosophy and theology and, and Bible and can you trust it, this or that. But I think all of that was a smokescreen. Finally, when we got to the nub, the, the, the rubber meets the road issue, where's your heart? And in this case, it was, I want to live however I want to live, and I don't want someone telling me how to live. Why should we live a certain way? Why should I tell you through this sermon series in 1 John, there is an appropriate way to live? Why do sermons exist? Why is John's solution to preach when a church is dealing with the issues that they're dealing with? The answer is because Jesus Christ, he really did exist. Guys, all of you in this room, please do us all a big favor. If you have somehow discovered that Jesus really never existed in human history, like it's a big fairy tale, please inform us because the Bible says we're wasting our time. I'm giving my entire career and life away to something that's a fairy tale? A sham? It really did happen. There's a man named Jesus, whether you read about it in the Bible or outside of the Bible. Secondly, he really did die on a cross. If you'd like to examine this, this is also objective historical facts that have been discussed by Jewish historians, Greco-Roman, or Christian. Third, although debated, it is a fact that the early church started, grew, was centered around, and exploded through the Roman Empire because, at least of this, to be as fair and as honest, at least of this, they believed he really did rise again from the dead. Now, many people don't think he did, but even the secular historians will say, Jesus Christ was claimed to have been raised from the dead, and that was the source and center of the entire church in the first place. That's how the church came into existence. It's why we came into existence. It's the purpose of Embassy Church. The only reason we exist is because there is a man, a God-man, who sinlessly lived on this earth, and he died in our place, and he rose again from the dead. And by doing so, he defeated death, and he brought light to the world the light of a new age, eternal life. And we should walk in light of that being the absolute truth, the best sense to make of the world around you. It's really true. Do you believe it now? Are you a Christian because of some experience that you spiritually had? Like, I just felt really good. I was at this church meeting. And then, like, I just felt God's love. That might have been a genuine experience. You might have been converted then. I would not bank all of my life and eternity on a subjective feeling, as good and as important as feelings are. That's part of our life. I would bank it on fact of human history. And that's what I'm pleading with you all to do. The word of life is the incarnate Son of God, living, dying, and being raised from the dead. That's his phrase. I think that's the point of touched. We've touched him. Not just when he was walking on the earth, but when he rose from the dead. And that, that's a game changer. It changes everything. Therefore, 
all we should be trying to do in terms of our participation and our membership and our lives as Christians is to maximize our joy by having fellowship in the light and the truth of the resurrection and living in accordance with that reality every single day, every single Sunday. And that's why Embassy Church exists to center ourselves around not just the word of God by teaching a book of the Bible and telling you some facts about it, but the word, capital T, capital H, capital E, the word, Jesus Christ. So I hope and pray that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that you will have grounds for you to understand what we believe here is not blind faith where we leap into the dark of death and say, well, I hope one day I go to heaven. We're here today because we believe that history has forever changed and that there is an overlapping reality of a kingdom of heaven here on earth, which is why we call ourselves an embassy. Citizens of another kind of kingdom with a different time zone, heavenly time, eternal life, not in the future, the future coming in to the present today. And we proclaim this just like John does for any and every situation because we believe that the word of life, Jesus Christ, it will be the best way to live now and for eternity the fullness of joy participating in this fellowship that is not only with each other in the room, but notice the heavenly dimension that we will unpack in the weeks to come with the Father and the Son. In fact, that's why as we close in prayer and we take the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what we're doing. We are participating in Christ, in our union and fellowship with him by faith and faith alone. So let's close in prayer now and do that. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your Son. We have no hope without Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Word that became flesh, the Word that brought all of existence into being when God said, let there be light, and there was light. We thank you for the power and the preservation of your Word. We thank you that that Word is enfleshed and made visible in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, I want to pray that the proclaiming of Christ today and the participating in the bread and the cup, the membership of the church, it will bring us to joy. It will lead us to life and not death, to walk in the light rather than in the darkness, to live in light of the truth of where the world is really going. Oh God, I pray for embassy, that you will guide each and every one of us to faithfulness to the message that's already been delivered and that you would also grant us faithfulness in the days and weeks to come to continue to be faithful, to proclaim Christ in any and every season and circumstance for the sake of our joy and ultimately for the sake of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.